This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here today, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is Monday, May 9th, 2022. And we are joined today by uh, a professor at Claremont Graduate University, my alma mater, where I got my master's degree, um, Michael Emmerman. He's a professor of finance and previously served as the co-director of the MS in Financial Engineering program from 2018 to 2021. And that is where I got my degree uh, only 20 years earlier uh, from, from his uh, tenure there uh, from the Claremont Graduate University. So I want to welcome Professor Emmerman to the show. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So when we reached out to you, I knew you were on sabbatical. So we're giving you really towards the end of your sabbatical to, to come join the show today. But what have you been doing with your spare time? I've heard you had a little side project that you're working on. Maybe you could uh, tell our listeners about that. Yes, I've, uh, I've been a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco for the past five months. Um, being on sabbatical from the university, I'm relieved of all teaching duties uh, for the semester. And I wanted to use my time, uh, I wanted to use my time wisely. And you know, one of the topics we're gonna talk about today is FinTech. And so what I've been doing is uh, advising the bank um, on, uh, on fintech related innovations and emerging risks. They actually have a dedicated fintech group at the San Francisco Fed. And I've been, um, I've had the honor of being a visiting scholar in that group for the past five months. So that being said, um, let me lead with the standard disclaimer, which is um, the views and opinions are those of myself and do not necessarily reflect the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco or the Federal Reserve System. Yeah, and let me add to that, a retweet is not an endorsement of uh, your views either, right? That's the, one of those things where we see on the internet, right? Yeah, that, that's that's true. <laughs> yeah. Although I'll take, I, I will take re retweets and likes and, yeah. and, and bumps. Yes, absolutely, and fist bumps as well. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about this. So you went from the world of academia to working with the Fed right now and talking about the role of fintech. So Describe to our listeners what fintech is. What what are you doing, and what are you working on while at the Fed and discover and talking about the world of fintech as well? So fintech is uh, is kind of the collision of uh, emerging technologies and financial services. Now, financial services is no stranger to technology. I mean, I'm 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 always getting um, you know the uh, the pushback that. Well, you know, banks have been uh, using digital technologies for decades. What about the ATM? Um, and this is true. So financial services are, are, are no stranger to technologies. But what's unique about what has occurred over the past 10 to 15 years, what we call the fintech revolution, is that we've had tech companies, both big tech, you know, the Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, Apple, um, as well as startups moving into the space. So these are companies that 
historically have had nothing to do with financial services. Um, over the past 10 years, they've moved into the space that has uh, traditionally been occupied by what we call the incumbents, banks, asset managers, insurance companies. So providing very similar services um, and products, but with a, uh, you know, a, a more pleasant user interface, um, kind of uh, more engaging, more gamified, um, and using more sophisticated algorithms than what the, uh, the traditional financial system is used to, and, and therefore getting more insights into their clients and the data that their clients generate. Uh, so this, this kind of uh, set the stage for a showdown between the incumbents um, and the tech challengers. And again, it's, it's not just coming from big tech, what we call the, um, the GAFAMA firms, right? So Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, actually, and then if, if we go international, we call it the Gafamat, because then you've got Alibaba and Tencent over in China that are, uh, are, are major players in this space. Uh, but you've got startups, and that was one reason, you know, that's, that's one thing that brought me out to Claremont Graduate University four years ago was I wanted to be on the West Coast where, you know, in, in the middle of the startups, and yeah, we've got startups on the East Coast. Um, I'm from the New York City area originally, um, got my start on Wall Street 20 years ago. Um, but you know, right now from San Diego all the way up to Seattle, I mean, you've got so much innovation going on and it could be, you know, just three buddies in a garage, you know, the, you know, the classic Apple story, right. Or the Microsoft story. I mean, we're seeing that again, where you've got just a couple of buddies and an idea. Um, and what they need then is they need the funds and they need the insight to be able to make this into a marketable product and these these you know with the right guidance and with the right resources these products are giving the incumbents a run for their money no no pun intended yeah so when you when you look at this as well and you you're talking about the industry why should we care that there's this intersection between tech and finance like why is it the yeah i'll use the the jargon the tech bros that should be out there um, uh, infiltrating the world of finance. Why? Why does this revolution matter to you? Well, I'm a I'm a risk guy. I mean, my my area of expertise before I started uh, getting into fintech, which was probably now about eight years ago or so I've been doing this first as a consultant, there was no academic interest in it when I got started back in 2014, 2015. Um, but, uh, but there was a lot of interest from the incumbents in having an expert come in and, and do some training on uh, digital transformation and innovation so that they could be prepared um, for what's to come. And, uh, and then more recently, I've been advising startups here on the West Coast, um, but my background is really in financial risk management and risk modeling. And so as a risk guy, and especially now as a visiting scholar at the Fed, um, you know, one concern is the financial stability concern. So if we've got tech companies um, playing in a highly regulated space um, and doing so legally uh, through partnerships, through joint ventures, or through other various loopholes that, uh, that they're able to find, um, you know, is this a potential precursor to the next financial crisis? So that's one thing that as both an academic and, you know, uh, an advisor to, uh, uh, to the San Francisco Fed, um, that has concerned me for years is the financial stability 
um, implications and the systemic risk implications of tech companies. It's also, but then as, you know, as a consumer, as a, as a, you know, as a tech geek, it excites me on how these new technologies are being used. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's much easier quite often to conduct, uh, financial transactions, whether it's, uh, transferring money, making a payment, or even placing a trade in a retail brokerage account using an app. Um, and so, especially in, uh, you know, over the past two years, when we've been kind of uh, confined to our homes on and off uh, with various stay at home orders and quarantines, um, it's been so much easier to be able to use digital technology rather than going to the bank or meeting with my insurance agent. Um, all of this can be done online or on my phone. So as a consumer, it excites me the potential um, you know, other emerging technologies, which we can get into later, haven't even hit the market yet. I mean, blockchain is starting to be rolled out in a, uh, in a more commercialized manner, but things like quantum computing, AR, VR, the metaverse, I mean, these are in their infancy. And, and again, as a, as a tech geek, this just, this just excites me. Yeah, and perhaps we can dig a little bit deeper into that. You talked earlier about the, uh, the FinTech revolution. Can you break out maybe this evolution for us in terms of the fintech ecosystem? I think you referred to it in one of your papers as the vertical, the verticals, you know, the, the various sectors or industries within fintech, uh, you know, perhaps the, the crowdfunding aspect of it, the, the lending, wealth management through robo-advisors. Um, can you give our, our, our listeners a sense of the, the various areas and how far reaching fintech is? Because even with me, it's like, you know, I see it from a certain subsector of financial services, but I just, when I was looking through and doing some research for, for this podcast, I was surprised at, at how far reaching FinTech really is and how it's created new industries within, uh, within the, the ecosystem here. Yeah, absolutely, Sam. That's, that's a great question. I'd love to speak to that. Um, as a matter of fact, so when Frank Fabozzi and I started collaborating, writing a book, by the way, with another gentleman named Nervikar Jain that uh, is to be published by MIT Press either later this year or early next year. It's called The Economics of FinTech. And so when, uh, when Frank Fabozzi and I first started collaborating on, uh, on FinTech, this was about five years ago uh, before I even came out to Claremont. As I said, initially, there was no academic interest in it, but about, you know, after two, three years of doing consulting and developing some expertise, uh, academia kind of caught up and, and Frank and I got the idea to write a textbook because there's no, um, you know, uh, comprehensive reference to go to when it comes to fintech innovation. And so uh, one of the first things we developed before even uh, putting together the proposal for MIT Press was what we call the fintech ecosystem. Um, and this is presented in chapter one of the book, but it's also presented, you mentioned, Sam, uh, one of my papers, we published a paper, it was the lead article in a journal of asset management in May of 2020, I believe, uh, where we use our fintech ecosystem as a way for investors um, to see value, identify value in uh, this new emerging space, fintech. Um, and so the way, the way that I think about it and the way the uh, ecosystem, the conceptual framework that Fabozzi and I developed um, is in terms of these fintech verticals and fintech horizontals. So if you think of a grid, the columns represent the fintech verticals. And these are the industry sectors within financial services that are being transformed by new technological innovations. So these go from 
payments, digital banking, fintech lending, digital wealth management, capital markets, prop tech, and insure tech. And so that, that order wasn't a random order, actually going from left to right in our fintech ecosystem goes from oldest to newest of these uh, industry sectors. So payment technology has actually been around for decades. I mentioned you know, the banking, um, the banking industry and financial services in general is no stranger to technology and nowhere is that more evident than in payments technology. I mean, uh, you know, the three of us are old enough to remember um, the, uh, the MasterCard, uh, the, the PayPass, not, not MasterPass, they have MasterPass now, which is on, on your phone. Um, but their original contactless payment in the early 2000s was called PayPass. And it was this, this key fob that you waved um, in front of an RFID sensor and could make a payment. That, that was kind of a flop. Um, it was not very successful. And I think it was kind of ahead of its time actually, um, contactless payment. But you know, even going before that, making payments, um, you know, online bill pay also around the same time, the turn of the century, you could pay your bills using online banking. Um, so the payment space has, uh, has, is really mature in the fintech ecosystem. Then as we move to the right and look at the different verticals, as I mentioned, digital banking, online banking, that's been around for a while, but more recently, there's been a bit of a shakeup because of these challengers, what we call neo banks and challenger banks, these startup companies, um, that are providing similar services to traditional banks, um, you know, deposit accounts, savings accounts, checking accounts. Um, as well as debit cards, credit cards, um, sometimes other personal financial management tools. Um, and they are you know, representing a real threat to traditional banks because let's face it, uh, traditional banks are not known for their customer service. Um, they're not known for their, um, their, the, the user experience. And that's where these startups really excel is they make the user feel important. They make the user feel involved. They actually make it fun. I mentioned the term gamification before. Um, so, you know, you get like a, a little celebration on your screen when you complete a transaction. You're like, wow, that was so much fun. I, 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 I want to do it again. Um, and so, you know, digital banking has been around for a while, but we're reaching a new point, kind of an inflection point with these startups. Um, and you've got digital wealth management, as I mentioned, fintech lending also. So banking and lending, uh, you know, that's transformed a lot over the past decade. So now you can get a mortgage on your phone in a matter of minutes rather than sitting down with a mortgage broker and spending months and months and months of, you know, scanning and photocopying tax returns. Uh, you give them access to your data. Of course, privacy is a concern. Again, it's a double-edged sword. So there's the there are the risks and there are the opportunities. As I mentioned before, the the two ways that I look at it. Um, and so with fintech lending, uh, you can have access to a loan, uh, whether it's for a mortgage or a personal loan, consumer loan, through all of these new channels, um, whether it's an online lender or peer-to-peer -peer lender or a marketplace lender. Um, so you've got SoFi, you've got Lending Club, you've got Rocket Mortgage. Um, digital wealth management, you've got robo advisors. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting area that I've been following closely because um, originally this was started startups, what we call disruptors. Um, there's actually a, a very technical definition to what a disruptor is. People throw that around 
Um, and this is something that I learned just doing research, uh, understanding digital transformation and financial services. A lot of financial economists like myself are not familiar with the management literature. And actually, there's a management professor who unfortunately passed away um, over two years ago, Clayton Christensen. He was a professor at Harvard Business School, and he coined this term disruptive innovation um, about 27 years ago, back in 1995. Uh, but since then, especially during this fintech revolution, everybody uses the term disruptor very loosely. Oh, this company is disrupting. This company is disrupting. This product is disrupting. But there's a very, very technical um, uh, set of criteria that a, a, a startup, and it doesn't even have to be a startup, even, even big tech does come up with disruptive innovations, the iPhone being one of them. Uh, but it has to meet this criteria. Now, robo-advisors, based on the research that uh, Fabozzi and I have done, it does meet the criteria of a disruptive innovator. Um, these were startups that have grown uh, exponentially in size in terms of assets under management. But again, we're, as with some of the other verticals, we're reaching an inflection point. And the inflection point here with um, with digital, digital asset management, digital wealth management, is that now the incumbents are catching up. And so Vanguard actually is the number one robo-advisor um, in terms of both assets under management as well as customer satisfaction. Um, so Vanguard's being a major player there. We've seen UBS just acquired uh, Betterment, uh, which was one of these startups uh, out of Redwood City, California, up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, uh, and so you actually it was uh, Wealthfront. I'm sorry, Belf <laughs> Betterment is in uh, is in New York. Those are those are kind of the two um, original uh, robo advisors: Betterment in uh, in New York City and Wealthfront in uh, in Redwood City. Uh, Wealthfront is is being acquired by UBS, and I think we're going to see more of this. I think the startups in the digital asset management space are going to either be partnering more with the incumbents or be acquired by the incumbents. Um, and then when you get all the way to the right, uh, the newest areas are prop tech and insure tech. And so that's how uh, technical, technological innovations are transforming real estate um, and insurance, respectively. Then you've got the horizontals. So I mentioned a grid. I just went through all the verticals one by one. You've got the horizontals, and those are the different functional areas that um, are being transformed as a result of new technologies. So areas like risk management, uh, regulation and compliance, um, funding how, how companies raise money um, across. So the reason we call these horizontals is they span across all the verticals. These are functional areas that all companies, whether you're an insurance company, you're an asset manager, or you're a bank, um, has to be concerned with. And new technology is making it easier to um, to automate and to uh, to get new insights into those functional areas. And then we've got the emerging technologies. And again, these are horizontal, so they're spanning across all the fintech verticals. And these are your blockchain, your quantum computing, your cloud computing, your VR, AR, metaverse. So these are the emerging technologies that are um, enabling this fintech revolution across the different fintech verticals. Yeah, I mean, there's so much inside of there. Uh, it, it was while you were talking, uh, there's a couple of things that came to mind. One is uh, I just got an advertisement on my T-Mobile bill, which was delivered electronically. And it was saying that I can open a checking account to get 4% interest. And you know, um, anything that gets 4% interest these days on, on a checking account, I click through. And um, turns out that they do it up to $3,000, so, so not bad. 
but you had to make like 10 purchases on some prepaid or their, their debit card or whatever they're using. I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's a lot to, to ask for just to get 4% on 3000. Uh, that said, um, I think about it, you know, you're talking about, you said the gamification and, you know, there was a, a lot, lot made about the meme revolution that we saw, the roaring kitties of the world who even had to testify in front of Congress. And, um, you know, is, is there something that's lacking in the regulatory landscape here that is creating this? Are, are we essentially creating investors or is it just an extension of that gaming and then we're trying to take advantage of that? How do you think about some of this accessibility? I mean, we all talk about democratization of finance. We all should know how to first of all, balance our own checkbooks, but more importantly, have access to vehicles. But how do you think about the intersection? Is it is it the regulator's responsibility? Is it really the onus on you know the 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 fintech players, or is the onus on the the old classic caveat emptor, and it's the user that should be aware of it? How do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know regulatory oversight is very important. Consumer protection is very important because the truth is, I mean. We are, you know, with accessibility, um, you know, comes the potential for, you know, less sophisticated consumers to have access to products that, um, you know, have risks that they don't really understand. We saw this in the- in Yeah, the, like, like targeting someone else's publicly traded ETF and making a two times inverse fund off of it, right? Where you're levered up twice the short of someone else's fund, right? I mean- it's gotten to where just even in the regulatory environment, it is getting a, you know, a little bit out there on the periphery, right? Well, I was gonna use an even older example. If we go back uh, you know, 15 years or so to the global financial crisis, uh, 2007, 2008, I mean, subprime mortgages were being packaged into uh, RMBS, residential mortgage-backed securities, and they were being marketed to retail investors as quote-unquote safe bonds, bonds that were very unlikely to default because of correlations. And then you use these very technical terms, you know, securitization, correlation, and, you know, a, uh, you know, a, 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 a popular function. Don't forget. Exactly. That. That I mean, that's, yeah, that that's been referred to as the, you know, the formula that broke wall street, um, you know, and, and, and so then you're marketing these products to say a retiree in middle America. Um, and, you know, when one, you know, when there's a little spark of, uh, you know, of, of, of a crisis, you know, it doesn't even have to be a, a full-blown crisis, but once you get that little spark, that little, you know, these, those, those little embers that start to form, in this case, it was defaults on subprime mortgages as a result of housing prices declining and the inability to refinance, um, you know, these, these bonds end up defaulting and these were supposed to be quote-unquote virtually riskless, right? So, you know, we should have learned our lesson. Um, and, you know, we as, as, you know, as, as a civilization continue to make the same mistakes. That's why they say history repeats itself, right? So, you know, that, that's actually, I mean, that's where I got my start as an academic was studying the global financial crisis and kind of the risk models that were used and the policy and regulatory uh, implications um, and solutions as a result of that. So I think it's very important, you know, if we learned anything from that uh, financial crisis, and there's actually a lot that we learned and that we're still learning, is that, you know, when you have something that has a, a, a level of sophistication that's beyond uh, what can be expected from a non-finance professional, um, 
there needs to be transparency, there needs to be oversight, and there needs to be consumer protection. And I think that's something that uh, the regulators are aware of. I mean, that's why we have this group at the San Francisco Fed um, that is advising the bank executives, advising the bank examiners. Um, there are a lot of think tanks um, that are, are you know, advocating on behalf of consumers, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, financial inclusion, but also as, as well as uh, financial literacy and education. You know, those, those are kind of two, two sides of the same coin. You know, can we have financial inclusion without financial literacy? Well, if you're trying to include the broader society into the financial system, you know, these are marginalized groups that historically were, were held out from, you know, investing in a retirement account or having a, a, a portfolio of their own or even having a savings account. You know, you have to educate that population on the do's and do nots. And so there are a lot of advocacy groups out there and think tanks and the regulators are actively working on this. Um, so I don't think the onus needs to be entirely on the consumer. Um, I think we'd be naive to expect that. Um, so I do think there is a burden on the regulators to, uh, to, to get ahead of any potential problems before we see a, a, you know, a reincarnation of 2008, 2009. Yeah, so Talking about that side, you know, the human interaction portion of it as it relates to, I guess, consumer protection. You know, consumer protection and regulations can be put in place to kind of help people from themselves, right, before they get a little bit overzealous into areas that they might not be familiar enough with. But how about protecting people from not necessarily themselves, but those miscreants, if you will, out there that take advantage of the improved uh, user experience that you know, has led to more efficiency. I mean, I guess the question is like, at what cost does improving efficiency have when it comes to perhaps leading to that darker side that comes with FinTech um, from the criminal element? And I bring this up because this last weekend I was, you know, on the phone with my mom and, you know, usually I talk to my mom for maybe 30 minutes at a clip, but this time it took two hours because she wanted me to help her open up a new account and that involved passwords and username and strengths and like that things like that. And uh, it was just a long experience. I mean, what is the cost of this improved user experience and when it, when it comes with a criminal element, which also increases the, the efficiency for criminals to cast a wider net, if you will, given the lack of that human-to-human -human interface that my mom is used to, 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 to operating under to now where she gets these text messages that supposedly come from her bank telling her to click here because her account has been breached, things like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's, I mean, with the increased digitalization um, on the consumer facing side, I mean, again, financial services is no stranger to digital technologies, albeit, you know, the, the, the same technologies that were used on Wall Street when I was there in, uh, in, in the early 2000s are still being used, um, you know, namely, giant mess of interconnected spreadsheets that dump data from um, various different mainframe uh, databases. Um, but I mean, you know, so progress is being made on the, uh, on the, on the commercial side as well, you know, migrating to the cloud. Uh, but what makes this time different, and this is a question I get all the time, is like, you know, why is 
this time different um, is because the consumer facing delivery of products and services is being digi uh, digitalized. And with that, whether it's on the, you know, on the back end with the banks and the insurance companies or on the front end with the consumer, there's, there's a risk of bad actors interfering. And it just makes it that much easier because in, in, in cyberspace, you know, you can have anonymity. Um, you, you could cover your trail much easier. So yeah, would it be more difficult to steal someone's identity by following them to the insurance agent and then hoping that they drop a, uh, a document on their way in so that you could steal their identity or, you know, using these phishing techniques that you mentioned, Sam, you know, a, uh, a, a text message saying, oh, you're, you're, um, you have a policy that is, is coming up for renewal, please click here. And before you know it, you're giving all your insurance information and personal information away to this bad actor. Back so, to my T-Mobile example. It's like they always call about my car warranty expiring. Even if you just bought a brand new car, the warranty is about to expire. Your student loans need to be refinanced, right? It's the same types of scams, right? Exactly. So it's easier to do in cyberspace and it's easier to you to, uh, you know, to, to do with digital technologies. Um, than when you know transactions are being done physically and in person. I mean that's 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 for sure. Um, but you know this also you know with new risks comes new opportunities as well, right? There's always downside upside. Um, so the new opportunity here is, and this is what I tell my students, is that there is a massive demand for cybersecurity professionals. And there's also demand, even if you're not a cybersecurity professional, you're not an expert in encryption, um, but just being educated. And again, it goes back to this idea of the consumer being protected. And I think regulators need to do a part here um, educators need to do uh, play an important role here, but it's it's um, you know informing the public about best practices. So you know how do you go about handling your financial transactions in a digital world? Just like when you would walk into a bank, you know you look over your shoulder, you carry your you know you you, you carry your briefcase close to your chest. I'm sorry, I'm I'm a New Yorker, right? That's <laughs> that's we we're always we're always carrying stuff close to our chest and looking around. Um, so uh, hey, I saw the town recently, you know, it's a movie somehow I missed about bank robbers, and I'm like, how did I miss this? It was an excellent movie too. So I understand why you're looking over your shoulder in a bank now. Yes, yeah, so, less appreciation for it. So I mean, that's you know that. We think that's common sense, and that's what we teach our children. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't wave a lot of cash around when you're in public. Um, but in cyberspace, it's 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 much easier to be duped. Um, and so, you know, I think in in much the same way that we educate our children, uh, we educate our students, we educate our clients on you know how to conduct in person financial transactions safely. Um, you know, we need that kind of outreach and engagement when it comes to digital transactions. That's going to become increasingly more important. That's why I said there's there's an opportunity here for students because on, on a cybersecurity and those who are more technically inclined, I mean, there's there's massive demand for those experts. But even for those who are less technically inclined, just in terms of establishing and communicating best practices, I think that's something we're going to see more is, is kind of coaching um, clients about how to conduct uh, your, your, 
financial transactions in a digital world um, so as to protect yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's why we like to have people who span both the world of academia as well as being practitioners too, because you, you have root in the theory, but you know how to do the application. So given this sabbatical and your experience with the Fed, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about one of the, the big topics that um, is happening at central banks around the world. And this is the introduction of the central bank digital currency, the CBDC, right? Uh, if, you, if you like acronyms there. And so um, we've had a couple of folks on, on the podcast talk about it over time, but let's talk about why uh, people should care about these digital currencies issued by central banks. Do, should they? And what are you guys talking about at the Fed, if you're at liberty to say, um, about the application of CBDCs within inside the fintech arena? Yeah, this is definitely something that the Fed is, uh, is investigating actively. Um, you know, what role, if at all, uh, will a digital dollar play? Um, I'm not involved in many of these conversations, in any of these conversations, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm on the periphery. Actually, doing some really incredible work at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston um, in collaboration with MIT. They have this Project Hamilton. Um, and so your listeners can find more information about that uh, online. But, um, but it is something, and, and at the board as well, my colleagues uh, at the board are also actively investigating and working on what would a, a digital dollar or, or a CBDC issued by the Federal Reserve um, look like? And what are the benefits and opportunities as well as the risks and costs of that. So it's definitely a conversation that has been taking place long before I arrived. Um, as I mentioned, I'm way on the periphery, so I haven't been directly involved in these conversations, but I've learned a lot over the last five months uh, as a visiting scholar at the San Francisco Fed. Um, one thing I learned, so I thought, you know, if, if, if we were to have this conversation six months ago when I was just a professor, um, I would have said, yeah, this is a no-brainer. Like, we don't want to fall behind the rest of the world. We need to release a digital dollar ASAP. It wasn't until I got where I am now and have this new perspective as a visiting scholar at the Fed and having participated in conferences and symposiums that I realized it's, it's not as big a no-brainer as I thought it was, uh, because there are a lot of subtleties associated with um, doing it right. So, you know, whereas six months ago, I would have said, you know, what's, what's so hard about, you know, taking all the cash out of circulation? We already pay with our phones. We already pay with our wallets. We are already paying online. You know, there are digital forms of payment out there, but they're private, right? Use a credit card. That's a digital payment, but it's going through your credit card provider and the issuing bank. Um, if you're using rewards, even, I mean, if I'm using Apple cash, you know, that's a form of digital money, but it's, it's value that's been accrued and a liability of Apple. Right, you know, that's that's these are rewards that I've accrued and Apple owes it to me. So if I want to redeem it, I redeem it. What CBDCs are is they are a liability of the central bank. Um, and it's not as easy and straightforward as it seems to just take all the cash out of circulation and introduce a digital dollar because it it really has to be done right. 
um, because you know the architecture has to be set up, the infrastructure has to be in place. Uh, there are going to be massive changes to uh, the the structure of the financial system, and and these subtleties, both from a technical perspective as well as from a, you know from a from a technological perspective as well as from an economic perspective, are um, are overwhelming. And again, it wasn't until, you know, just over the past few months that I came to realize that this is a much bigger undertaking than I ever imagined. Um, so yes, this is a conversation that's being had, but it's something that is being done very carefully, very delicately, because if done the wrong way, um, you know, it'll, it'll be a mess, um, to put it simply. Well, it's good to hear that uh, the Fed's actually taking their time with this and, and really studying it well, because as you say, I mean, the, the disruption, if it's screwed up, is greater than you know, what it's trying to disrupt and create the ease of use for. So I, I guess kind of on the last kind of note here too, you mentioned a lot of stuff about the, the VR, the AR, the metaverse. What part of FinTech are you the most excited about? And where would you like to spend your next uh, level of research in what area really thinking about that's uh, most useful to you and most practical? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked me that, Jeff. I'm gonna geek out on you right now because <laughs> the thing that excites me the most, the thing that literally keeps me up at night, not out of fear and concern, but just out of excitement is quantum computing. Um, I'm, I mean, we're still probably a good five to 10 years away from uh, you know, scalable commercial quantum computers. Uh, but the research is being done now and it is just fascinating. And that is, uh, you know, that, that's something that excites me a lot. I think quantum computers have the potential to totally change the game. I mean, people have talked about blockchain um, as a game changer and indeed it, 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 it has the potential and we're at that we're at that point where blockchain technology is becoming commercialized and is being rolled out at scale, is being leveraged. Um, but you know, it's it, when it comes down to it, blockchain technology is just a distributed ledger. So it's a digital ledger distributed over multiple nodes rather than being centralized at one location. Um, so it's not really changing the game per se, but it's just, you know, making it easier and, you know, more digitalized. Quantum computing literally changes the game. I mean, the way quantum computers work is totally different from the way classical computers work. And so, um, you know, simulations that we run at a bank for, say, market risk measurement that would take hours to run on even a supercomputer could be done in a matter of minutes or even seconds on a quantum computer. Um, and, you know, that's just, I mean, I'm a financial economist, so those are the applications that I'm looking into as a researcher, um, but there are applications way beyond financial services even, you know, uh, new drug development and um, quantum machine learning, both in and outside of financial services is, uh, is really exciting. So, so that's what, I mean, it literally keeps me up at night because I watch, you know, I watch like documentaries and, and even science fiction movies that have to do with quantum computing and it just gets the juices flowing. And, and that's, that's where I anticipate spending a lot of time um, in the future. 
Yeah, uh, Professor Emmerman, you, you can, uh, I, I hope our listeners really get an appreciation for just what your students get to experience with you all the time, right? The energy you bring to the class, you're always innovating here too and trying to look at those things. And so uh, I'm sure they really enjoy it. And I appreciate what you're doing out there for my alma mater as well. So uh, I got to say, keep up the good work. Would love to have you back as, uh, you know, and get some updates on your research too over time. And we really appreciate you spending time with us today. Um, but before you go, I have to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. Sam? And that favorite part of the show, Professor Immerman, is called Sherman Said. I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman to elicit a top of mind response. I'm hoping that they're concise. I'm hoping that you can maybe do it in one word because I know Sherman can't. So uh, let's see how this goes. All right, I'm gonna give, kick it off to Sherman first with an example, asset sales. All day, every day. Seems to me that's what it feels like in the market today. It's like, <laughs> not only is everyone selling, but everything's on sale. Uh, so it's both of those words sell. I know people use them interchangeably at times, but um, sure feels like it. And that was not close to one word whatsoever. So Unless you want to say all day or day, and that's all one word, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, this one goes to you, Professor Emmerman. Too big to fail. Still a problem. Carbon capture. Panacea. FinTech consolidation. It's happening. Labor market. Tight. Global debt levels. High. Debt jubilee. As a bond manager, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I also see this one every couple of years too. So yeah, I haven't heard that one in a while. I haven't heard about that phrase in a while. Um, you know, um, history says that it does exist. So uh, be careful. All right. Uh, deep learning technology. Exciting. Net zero carbon emissions goal. Exciting. Attainable? I, I like to repeat words sometimes. I like to try to use. <laughs> I would say I would say ambitious. If I could piggyback yeah. off of <laughs> off of uh, yeah. off of Jeff's answer, I think it's very ambitious, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. Well, we got. Hey, hey Sam, I told you my solar. You know, we are producing. We have been for a while, especially this time of year. 150 percent of our usage. So I feel like I'm giving back to the community and getting nothing for it. But I feel like I'm doing my part. Hopefully, I'm not overloading the grid. So. <laughs> I, I'm trying to help get there on that net zero. Yeah, I'm a couple steps behind you, but getting closer. So we'll see. Maybe the tag team, it takes two sometimes. There we go. All right. Professor Immerman, you're going to wrap it up with the final prompt of Skynet. I don't even know what the hell that is. <laughs> from the uh so it, it's it's a play on what you just said uh, the movies that you watch that kind of scare you and keep you up at night the skynet from the from the terminator oh wow well, it's been it's 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 <laughs> been about 30 years since i've seen the terminator <laughs> yeah. yeah supposedly i guess skynet went self-aware sometime in the summer of 1997 so we're living in it apparently from the movie so 
Uh, so oh, it's been so long. My, my kids have been asking me when they can watch. I've got young kids and they've been asking me when they can watch the original Terminator. And I, it literally was like 30 years ago that I, that I saw it. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, my kids are starting to get interested. I mean, they're very interested in technology, real technology, but they're starting to get interested in science fiction as well. Uh, so that's, I, I, I'm going to have to revisit Terminator sooner rather than later. Yeah, wasn't it like a neural, wasn't it a neural network or something? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? So like, that's always been like the holy grail of, of machine learning, right? Was the neural networks, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you might want to wait a couple of uh, years. I don't know how old your kids were, but I remember watching it, uh, Terminator 1, the first time, maybe in middle school and being kind of scared even at that time. But uh, Sherman, per Wikipedia, Skynet is a fictional, artificial, neural network-based conscious group mind and artificial general superintelligence system. Yeah, I, I had a couple of those words, but not not <laughs> I didn't nail that one. So uh, you, I think we did, all need to did. brush up on our Schwarzeneggers. You did better than I did. <laughs> well, I guess, Professor he, Everman, I guess before, he won that round. Before, no, I, don't, I don't, there are no winners in Sherman says. <laughs> you know, uh, we all know that. But, um, you know, before we let you go too, what's the best way, place that people can, you know, follow your research? Where do you publish at? Uh, we heard about the forthcoming book. What, what's the best way for our listeners to get a hold of some of the things you're working on? They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, that's the only social media that I use, actually. Um, you know, some of, some of my research is preprints pre of, uh, of papers that I'm currently working on um, can be found on SSRN, the Social yep. Science Research Network. Um, but yeah, the best way to, uh, to connect with me and follow me is, is on LinkedIn. Okay, well, I encourage our listeners to do that. Uh, Professor Emmerman, thanks for all you're doing out there. Uh, it was great to have you on the show today. Uh, for our listeners, too, uh, you can always follow us on the Twitter. Uh, that's our main social media network. Um, it's at Sherman Show Pod. You can listen to this podcast on uh, Google, SoundCloud, Google Play. That's Google twice now. Uh, iTunes, I to say that twice. Some other ones, Sam knows about Spotify. Um, we're, we're, we're on all kinds of stuff out there. But more importantly, uh, we're putting out videos these days. So if you're still old school, listen to audio and you're sitting at home, you want to check out what the professor's cool fan or uh, his bl uh, blinds look like in the fan shape in the background. <laughs> That's amazing. I've been marveled by that the entire time. Uh, you can see this on youtube.com backslash double line capital. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L. Uh, we've had some people misspell it uh, over the over time. So um, again, you can tune into this on either your podcast players or catch us on YouTube. So thanks again, Professor. It's a pleasure chatting with you and tune in in two weeks and we'll have another Sherman Show podcast for you soon. Take care, all. represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. 
Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 Double Line Capital.